Um, <clears throat> when I was in Israel and um, I was in very close association with many members of what would be called the settler movement in Israel. And this involves some very, you know, issues of interpretation of, <clears throat> of the Hebrew scriptures um, and several other issues in terms of, for example, um, the, there is widespread a consensus that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. However, um, if you read all the different lists that different rabbis through the centuries, different Jewish scholars have developed for those, you will find some disagreements as to what is included in the 613 or as to which of the 613 applies in this day and age. And one of the most controversial bones of contention among Jewish scholars when I was in Israel was in fact over whether or not the command to conquer the land and to settle it was still applicable or not. And this had wide-ranging political implications, of course, because if you believe yourself under a religious obligation to conquer and settle the land if you are Jewish and to settle it for the Jewish people, uh, you begin to understand some of the religious motivation of the settler movement in Israel. Um, the difficulty is that there are also schools of thought that say, no, that commandment is not in force now. Uh, it may at some later date come into force, but as of right now, it is not. So then, <clears throat> if you are involved in an armed struggle and you believe that you are commanded by God to conquer and settle the land and you get involved in an armed struggle in that regard, uh, you can't really compromise politically because you have an absolute obligation. I think that when I look at the overall picture, particularly in the Middle East, one of the wisest uh, statements that I, uh, that, that I heard was from Rabbi Shalom Hartman of the Hartman Institute, who in a talk in Jerusalem said something that has become something of a mantra of mine. And he said, uh, authority presupposes a common consensus of commitment. Authority presupposes a common consensus of commitment. Uh, there was a time when that common consensus of commitment was pretty strong in all three of the Abrahamic faiths. But if you look around at contempor the contemporary situation, where is the consensus as to what is authoritative in Judaism, in Christianity, or even in Islam? You have so many different interpretations of the religious traditions within each of these three faith communities, and you can't find a common consensus. In a way, the whole problem boils down to one of authority. And in each religious tradition, you do not have one central authority to whom you can appeal for the authoritative interpretation of the elements of the tradition that are in dispute. And um, 
that was part of my analogy about the two sisters arguing over the, the legacy is that there's no probate court around. And so we have no probate court to adjudicate the different claims to the legacy of Abraham that are out there in the world today. So what would be the, the humble response would precisely to be humble and to recognize no matter how strongly I believe in my own interpretation, even of my own tradition, I have to do so with the humility that I may be mistaken. And very seldom do we find in the religious-based political discourse of our time the willingness to admit I may be mistaken. Uh, it reminds me of the Protestant theologian Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, who was the person who really invented the concept of dialogue and passed it on to Franz Rosenzweig, who gave it to Martin Buber. But the essence of dialogue is this. I will respond even though I may be changed. I will respond even though I may be changed. This is the attitude you have to take to really enter into a dialogue is to admit the possibility that I may be the one who needs to change. So um, I will pray and then we'll formally begin. Almighty God, we give this session to you. We ask that you would guide us through divine wisdom to hear, to learn, and even as Zev just said, that we are here not just to change but others, but to change ourselves as you give us the grace to do. And so guide us today. Amen. Jim. Question is for Imam Juma. I'd like you to discuss the various types and meanings of jihad in Islam, uh, the ones that are nonviolent as well as the ones that are violent. And uh, to me, Christianity is based primarily on on Christ, accepting Christ into our lives. That's basically, uh, uh, I think, the, the the thesis of the New Testament. And Christ never advocated for any type of jihad, any type of battle, everything was love. And in Islam, I'm certainly no Islam expert, you are, uh, but in Islam, you know, there does seem to be, you know, at least some reference to violence within jihad. That being the case, with due respect, I don't understand how Islam can consider itself a religion of peace and Christianity not a religion of peace. Um, this is one of the topics that uh, uh, so many people would like to understand because Islam is associated with the word jihad. Now, first of all, the way I understand the word jihad or the way I understand it is that there is nothing, there is no violent jihad. There's no, just as uh, there's nothing uh, in Islam that is called radical Islam. It's a name that just came up 
out of the people who, again, we have said that they are translating the Quran uh, according to their own purposes. You see, and then this word came in, but there's only one word. If you look at, uh, at Islam as a whole, you will never find anywhere that there, there is something radical uh, in it. There's a word radical on it anywhere. The name is Islam only. You are either in or you are out. So the word jihad is again uh, misinterpreted, uh, and by saying that rad uh, violent jihad uh, uh, actually is making this word wrong also, because there's nothing if you know the, word, the meaning of the word jihad. Now, first of all, I want to translate the word jihad. Uh, jihad is not war. It doesn't mean war by the name of Arabic, uh, the way it is. It doesn't mean war. Jih uh, war actually uh, is called qital in Arabic. Uh, jihad is striving. That's the meaning of the word, strive. Okay, and strive means working hard to fulfill uh, your need that you have out of very, uh, maybe, uh, little resources. See, so, for example, a student who wants to pass his exam, he's doing jihad to pass that exam because he has to wake up at night and make revision, uh, do all these things. So th that is actually jihad. Now, I want to write it one of the narration of uh, Prophet Muhammad when he said, and this is the time when they were coming from a battle. They are coming from a war, okay? And as I mentioned, war is not something that, uh, it is not there. Uh, war is there until today. So you cannot say, for example, because America is going to fight in Afghanistan, they are violent people. They have a cause which to you, you don't feel it is violent. But maybe some other people somewhere, they feel they are violent. So every time when you have somebody or uh, two groups of people fighting, then the people, maybe other people, will, will feel that these people are violent because maybe they invaded us, but other people see that, see that no, we are not violent uh, because maybe we are fighting for a right cause. So war has been there. We see in the movies, uh, the most blockbuster movies about war, okay, we cannot deny that. Uh, every country in the world, I don't, I don't know if there's any country who has not fought in a battle, okay. Yes, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just I'm, trying. I'm talking straight. I'm, I'm concerned strictly about the theology within Islam. Yes, because, uh, like, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about uh, uh, jihad, but I mean, and again, a neophyte with respect to the Quran. But I mean, I, I, I've read about the verse of the sword that supposedly this is in the Quran, and I know uh, Professor Islam Bouli had mentioned to us that uh, he talked to us a, a bit about Sharia and stated that it referred to sources, references, and rules, and under sources he listed uh, the Quran and the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, within the Quran is uh, what's known as the verse of the sword, which granted permission to wage war against idolatrous tribes which had violated agreements with Muslims. Now, are you saying that that's not in the Quran? Am I misunderstanding? Okay. So, again, they did they wage war against what? Idolatrous tribes which had violated agreements with Muslims. So they so violated something, right? Yeah, but, but my point is, if that is actually in the Quran, mm -hmm. you know, there is something in Islam that's actually allowing for retribution. That mm -hmm. doesn't exist in what Christ, you know, uh, <clears throat> laid out for us with his work on the cross and the Christian faith is espoused in the New Testament. Okay. So the first thing what I want to say is that war as war is something that is allowed. Okay, war as war is something the Quran something that is allowed. Huh? The Quran does justify war. 
for a, for a cause. It allows for just war. For just cause. Whereas it is allowed. Whereas New Testament Christianity, nothing, nothing in Christ's belief, you know, uh, allows for that. Everything there is love and forgiveness. All right, now, now i got to jump in I, here as I, an arbitrator, I, 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 just, I, I, for time, yeah. just for 10 seconds. I then will explain a little bit on that. Then we have the Christian, and then we have your point of view both mm -hmm. ways. I will explain a little bit on that. Let me, let me help one second here, mm -hmm. and then you go. When I became a Christian in 1971, they gave me the Bible, and I read it, and I actually read it. <laughs> and I was, like, stunned. I started in Genesis the way you're supposed to, and I read all of this war and killing and God go in and slaughter everybody. I'm, I'm a hippie. I'm like, what? This bothered me so much that I spent many, many years and finally did my master's thesis on what the Bible teaches about war. Mm -hmm. And I found out that I'm like the goofball. I'm like in the very small minority of Christians down through the ages who thinks that we shouldn't use violence ever against people. I'm a pacifist. But I found out what among the history of the church? Christians. Pretty much alone, buddy. Just war is the, pre the preeminent view among the Christians. Just war. That it's allowable to kill mm -hmm. if you have just cause. Now, then you get into the whole discussion. Well, what's just cause? Right, we'll leave that aside because that's never going to. But the principle is that the majority of Christians believe in just war. The majority of Jewish people believe in just war. The majority of Islamic people believe in just war. And they all have places in their scriptures where they can go if they want to buttress this viewpoint. So I, all I'm trying to do is help you amend the question in terms of historical realities. You may be a pacifist, I don't know. And if that's the issue, then you and I can go cry in the corner because <laughs> it, it's, it's, you're not going to be able to say in your question, why does Islamic, why do Islamic people promote violent jihad? Yes, that's followed by Islamic people. Mm -hmm. Now, now that we've set the table here with the fact that we talk about how we imperfectly, right? I just wanted to set the table so that we understand that all three major Abrahamic traditions pretty much share that viewpoint of just war. And then it becomes a revolving discussion on what's just. Now, you can speak okay. from an Islamic viewpoint. Yeah, then I'll, I'll come to that, that um, you have to understand the situation that was at that particular time that we are talking, that you're talking that these people, uh, they violated the contract that, because it said in the clause of that contract, okay, in that contract that we are talking about, there was a clause that we are stopping war for 10 years, no fighting, it's going to be peace, unless somebody violated this contract. Okay, so coming to the contract that you are talking about, this is called the contract of Hudaybiyah, uh, and, uh, and that's what, 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 what happened actually. So they were commanded to fight because they even didn't want to fight with them. But then God commanded because that they violated it. So, so it is not uh, because, um, Let's just go and beat these people uh, because of that. Uh, so there was a clause on that contract about that issue. Pastor Dave and then Zev. 
I, um, this is a subject I've struggled with my whole life, as I imagine most people do. Um, for me, it comes down to, again, being a Presbyterian pastor, uh, the understanding that, that we are all sinners and that the Christian is as guilty um, as any other of taking scripture, kind of getting back to the first question, and twisting it for selfish purposes or self-serving ends. Um, the idea that Christianity is not a violent religion, I find just kind of mind-boggling because our history is replete with it. Um, and it's justified by scripture. Does that mean scripture justifies it? No, it means how we use things, uh, manipulate writings, manipulate our own needs and lie to ourselves to get what we want or to get where we need to get in order to justify A, B, or C. Um, that's For me, that's just simply another example of the, the deep truth of human sinfulness. Good. Jeff? idea, how can you then say it is not, it's wrong, it's not a sin then? What I would say is that um, what I would suggest is that nine out of ten times what we call a just war uh, or a just cause is anything but. We confuse justice with um, with personal need or desire, uh, with fear, acting on our own fears as opposed to justice. Most wars don't come about because one party or another is seeking justice. Most wars come about because one party or another wants something. Um, whether it is land or money or possession, or power. Well, now this is where Presbyterian theology, Lutheran theology, came to the aid of this viewpoint, briefly. Luther, Calvin, and the rest of them said, you are never justified by what you do. In the end, you're justified only by the work of Christ on the cross. Period. Full stop. So that whatever you do from then on, sin or not sin, isn't a working towards your meritorious standing with God. That's another category called sanctification. You're justified by faith. So Luther and the rest of them said, well, it, you have to, you're living in a sinful world. You're not justified by what you do. Do what you have to do and then ask God to forgive you. In essence. There's, there's a, a in, thought the core. that... that no matter what, if it is, if, if something results in war, then it is automatically a sign of failure, of sin, because it means you didn't work it out short of war. So war itself is an admittance that you have failed. And then you fail more in the midst of fighting it to get to the best end that you can. That's how just war theorists work it out. 
We failed to prevent there's no, war. There's no such thing now as good war. It. Now we got to do it. We'll work to the best end possible, and then God will forgive us in the end. Go. One of the things that came across, you know, that I, when I was fairly early in my five years in Israel, was there was a huge debate in the Israeli Jewish community, religious community, of um, whether or not Israel's wars were considered in the category, and here I have to use the Hebrew term, it's kind of difficult to translate of what is called a milchemet mitzvah. Uh, milchemet mitzvah literally means a war of commandment. In other words, the idea is that you are literally fulfilling a Torah commandment by waging war. That there is a specific Torah commandment to do that. Now, oddly enough, there were many people who were arguing against the Jewish religious community uh, by saying, you know, we had, there was one of the things that was uh, common is that Jewish students who were in Talmudic academies were exempt from military service, which, you know, was one of the things that make Israelis Israelis is this universal military service. And therefore, they were, you know, being put on the spot by saying, are you saying that Israel's wars are not a milchemet mitzvah? And the chief rabbinate pointed out something both to those Jews who were willing to say yes in the religious community and those who were saying no. That there are certain things when you look at passages in the Torah where the Israelites are commanded to make war, particularly in the conquest of the Canaanites, and certain things apply. Number one, no prisoners of war. You don't take prisoners. You commit genocide. You not only commit physical genocide against the people, you commit cultural genocide by wiping out all of their religious sites. And uh, if any of them do survive, they are to be enslaved. Those are the provisions of the commandments that were given to the children of Israel. Now, of course, what you have to ask yourself is a number of questions about this. Number one, what was the provenance of that commandment? It was at the very point, <coughs> excuse me, where the Israelites were trying to come in, conquer, settle the land, and Canaanite culture and Canaanite cultural practices would have been unintegrable into an Israelite commonwealth based on the covenant. And therefore, this was a case of, as it were, extreme exigency demanded by the historical situation. So you have the issue, can you then take this and transfer it to a modern situation where the people you are fighting, for example, are not Canaanite idolaters, but are Muslim and Christian Palestinian Arabs. And the historical answer of the church is, yes, we can. Yes, and the historical answer of the settler movement is, yes, we can. But, you know, that's one thing the chief rabbi was admonishing some of the religious extremists, saying, if you're serious about calling this a milhemet mitzvah, then there are certain things you have to do 
And certainly we as a people who have survived an attempt at genocide, the Holocaust, how can we then turn around and in effect exercise genocide against another people because they differ from us in faith? And so that was really a dicey issue at that time. They had to come up, the compromise they came up with is they're not a milchemet mitzvah, a war of commandment, but they are wars which we are commanded to participate in because they are wars of self-defense. And in this, Judaism is by no means alone because the wars in which the Prophet Muhammad and the Muslim community in Medina in particular were, you know, had to engage in were wars of self-defense. They were, the, the, the opponents in Mecca were seeking to wipe out the Muslim community. And so you always have to look at the historical context, which is why I like what's something that Larry Kushner said about Judaism. He said, Jews are not so much the people of the book, but people of the interpretation of the book. And we have to always look at our interpretations and really see, are we interpreting what we find in scripture in a manner that is consistent with both the similarities and the differences in historical conditions? From a very uh, limited I, historical perspective. Just go, go ahead. a little bit. I wanna explain a little bit more about that. Um, the way you showed that verse and related to Muslim being like violent is exactly the way ISIS is translating Quran. So taking one verse and make decision on it that this is how it is. Now I wanna, I wanna read you in chapter number two of the Quran, the rules of law. And this is verse, from verse 190 to 193. And listen to this, it says, you may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you. Do you hear that? They have to attack you. And then that's when you can fight. But do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. Okay? You may kill those who wage war against you. Okay? So they wage war against you. You're going to fight with them. They're going to die. Because fighting, when there's war, people are going to die. I don't know if there's any war and people haven't died. You see? And you may evict them where they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. To oppress people is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they attack you therein. If they attack you, you may attack them. This is the just retribution for those disbelievers. If they refrain, meaning if they stop, they don't do uh -huh. anything to you, they don't fight you, then God is forgiven the merciful. Don't do anything. God is forgiving, is forgiving everybody. If they stop fighting, don't fight them. The last one. You may also fight them to eliminate oppression. Okay, if uh, there are some people uh, that we know that they are oppressing their own people, we can fight them because oppression is bad. As it's mentioned before, oppression is worse than murder. I mean, you don't, we don't feel it that way as human beings, but for God, he, God himself feels that to oppress people is to 
punish them more than if you murder them. You see, it's easier to murder people and they are, they are gone and then to oppress them every single day and to worship God freely. So everybody, and this is what we uh, Muslim believe that, and there are chapters in the Quran that shows that, hey, you have your religion, I have mine. Worship God the way you want, I'm gonna worship God the way I want. It mm -hmm. is up to God to decide who is right, who mm -hmm. is wrong, that's not up to us. Uh, this is the way you believe, go ahead, worship that, okay? So this is the way I believe, don't stop me from worshiping the way I want. Yeah. Hmm. Islam. That wasn't it. Okay. My point was that that is part of the Quran. That is in there. Mm -hmm. That is a justification to fight uh, if you're attacked. My point was in the New Testament, Christianity, Christ did not advocate that. He did not advertise that, or uh, he did not advocate that. It wasn't a, 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 an eye for an eye, so, so to speak, or a tooth for a tooth. It was to basically turn the other cheek. Yeah, but Moses did, right? Well, I, I'm not talking about Old Testament. Okay. That's a logical fallacy. You know, I'm talking about the New Testament right mm -hmm. now. So, you know, th that was just my point. And mm -hmm. I understand, you know, uh, that there are, you know, very positive and pacifist uh, phrases yeah. within that. My main point was that the thesis, uh, the main theme of the New Testament was, mm -hmm. I mean, there's not violence advocated and, in it. And, and, and that can come because of the differences of the, of the revelation itself. You see, the time of Jesus uh, it may, may be different to the time of Muhammad. The situation of Muhammad, the situation of Noah, the situation of Solomon uh, is different to the situation of Muhammad. So uh, all these differences in life, uh, the situation at that particular time might be the reason. So Jesus may not have uh, anything to do with war because the people were not fighting. They were just opposing him, uh, but not actually waging war against him, for example. So he didn't uh, command anything about, about fighting. But Moses, maybe, uh, maybe during that time, people did. Maybe Solomon, people did. So that he fought, maybe. You see, so the situation changes accordingly. And uh, according to that situation, then the command came in, do this or do that, depending on that. Okay, we have a question back here, and then we have one here. And the rest of you, we have a lot of time left, so keep thinking and raise your hand. This is more an observation than a question. It's my observation that we live in a very male-denominated world. I'm not aware, historically, of any female starting one of these wars. Well, Cleopatra, I, but go ahead. All right, all right. Maybe, because, ahead. maybe because of a female, <laughs> but not the start of the war. My question is, perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> I understand that, doctor. <laughs> Doesn't make it right. Perhaps it's time to turn the management of the world over to the females. Well, in fact, the guy that I talked about last week, Bono, he's got a line in, a, yeah. in one of his songs, and yeah. that's what he's advocated. He thinks that women should be at least equally prominent in the UN and everywhere else in every country to, to, to take the edge off that testosterone. Go ahead. The record so far is not very impressive for the gentleman. Uh, why don't you go down the line and comment on that? Uh, and to, 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 to put you on the spot, to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. yeah, one of the things that a lot of Westerners, they look at Islam, they're all oppressive of women and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday when I was, last time I was in Africa. Mm -hmm. And we're walking down, and he is in Ghana. Mm -hmm. 
The people where we were living, they're living in brick, in stone houses with black mold on it at the ocean. Mm -hmm. And 10 miles inland, they built a Western mall with Western clothes. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking in this mall, and um, I, I wasn't lusting, but I noticed, <laughs> I'm just clarifying here, mm -hmm. two women walking in front of me, teenagers, mm -hmm. African girls, with painted on jeans and really tight tops. Now, all the other Native African women mm -hmm. have the beautiful, long African... No, no doubt they're females, right? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. cannot dispute that. Mm -hmm. But, they're, but they're, not sh they're not flaunting or showing. And so I said to the pastor, what, it, what do you see when you see that? What do you think? And he says it's heartbreaking because the West has brought these um, styles of clothing, and the girls and boys see that, and they want to be like Westerners. So they dress that way, they throw off African values, and then it leads to a destruction of our culture. Is, 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 am yes. I hearing this correctly? Mm -hmm. So I just want to set this up because a lot of times Islamic um, the faith, get, oh, the, look at the women, they're oppressed, they have to wear all these clothes and stuff. Um, why don't you guys talk about female, male stuff in your traditions and tell us your point of view okay. about that mm -hmm. criticism about... Okay. My wife just moved up here from Florida. She's at the home babysitting the U-Haul that's going to get re unloaded this afternoon. And the first thing that she, who is an Episcopal priest, would have to say to me is, I'm not qualified to speak on this subject. <laughs> I will say this, that this is one of the things that is a major contemporary challenge I really do think for all of the Abrahamic faiths is the fact that in their genesis, in, their, in the historical circumstances in which they were formed, they were um, formed in patriarchal societies. There's no question about it. Uh, but one of the things that you can find if you look through it in the subtexts is that very often in the subtexts in scripture, this patriarchy is all not universally uncriticized even in our scriptures. So for example, uh, look at the role of the women in the book of Genesis. And you will frequently find that the um, pattern that seems to emerge is, yes, it was a patriarchal society, but the story seems to be about ineffective patriarchs where the women actually have to step in and take the leadership role. Um, it was uh, Phyllis Tribble who once um, pointed out one of the more remarkable features in the book of Exodus, that um, when the oppression of the Israelites under the Pharaoh began, uh, the Pharaoh tried to enlist the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, in uh, the plan to kill the Israelite firstborn males. And so they refused to collaborate, and God rewarded them, and here is the key phrase, by giving them houses, batim. And houses means that there were houses that were called not after their patriarch, 
which is the usual pattern, but they would have been called the house of Shifra and the house of Pua, and their descendants would have been known as such. Now, here comes the punchline. We know these women's names. What was the name of the Pharaoh? We don't know. Pharaoh was a title. Paro actually in Egyptian meant great house. And this is one of the subtexts we have to start mining in order to recognize that this idea of patriarchy is not going unchallenged, even in our sacred texts. And therefore, um, one of the things that you really have to look for is this kind of internal critique. It is very much the same thing with regard to the institution of slavery. Many people looked at the Hebrew scriptures as justifying the institution of chattel slavery. But at the same time, when you look at the trajectory of the laws pertaining to slavery in the context of other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it's very clear that the overall trajectory is against legitimizing slavery to the point where the one rabbinic saying says, if a man purchases a slave, he has purchased himself a master. Yeah, this is like that kind of thing when we study scripture, what some people say, you can go through the text, but what you want to find is the trajectory. Where does the burden of the text lead you to find the heart of God? That's, I think, what we're trying to, not yeah. every little picky, what's the heart of God? Do you want to uh, comment on the uh, well, patriarchal and then we'll save the best for the last? <laughs> I, I guess I go to that same place in scripture um, and, and human sinfulness. In other words, how, how do we use scripture? Um, how do we use it to affirm that which we believe and want? And how do we use it to shame or belittle that which we don't agree with or appreciate? Scripture to me, if we we're really talking about a living word, then we have to do that justice. Um, to what degree, to have a high, to have a high understanding of scripture uh, has typically and traditionally meant a fundamentalism about, or towards scripture. To me, that's a dead scripture. It's not a living word. It's a dead scripture. It just easily then morphs into law and can't cope with or deal with or interact with uh, culture as it is, it is moving, either advancing or digressing. It can't really interact with that culture. It can't really speak to that culture because it's, it's just basically become a law. When the interesting thing about Christianity is we're invited into a relationship. Um, and as most of us know, especially those of us who are married, relationship and law really don't go together very well. Um, it, it can be the death of relationship. To, to, to attempt to come to relationship via the vehicle of law is not a really healthy way to go about it. So I, I guess I'm coming into not only trajectory, but the realization that um, cultures change and scripture's powerful enough to deal with that without having to, to make it be something it was a thousand years ago. I'll leave it at that. Okay, good. Yeah, um, 
to 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 me what i think is that uh, <coughs> first of all religion especially islam is uh, is different with uh, science in terms of evolution that in evolution, they say that man was like maybe he started with apes and and, get, and and come up and but but for us we believe that God created human being as He is, and He created uh, male and female, each one with a purpose on this world. Okay, so each one of us, uh, if you are a male, you have your own purpose when it comes to God, and when it's a female, they are, uh, they have their own purpose on this world. Okay, they have, they have their responsibilities also. Uh, so uh, for us as Muslim, and if you read on the Quran, everything is mentioned as men and women. Okay, for men who do this and women who do this. For men who do that and women who do that. See, so each one has been given equal share uh, when it came to uh, spiritual things. Uh, so if I have uh, to do something and a woman has to do the same thing in terms of worshiping God, now, when we, we come to the life, life thing, uh, then in Islam, in Islam, men has, it, it says that, and this is a very diff, uh, complex uh, topic to talk like in a very few minutes. And the way it says is that men has been given that authority, okay, in a house, okay, as a leader, in the house. So I know there are some houses, it's not like that, uh, it's different, but uh, for Islam, man in the house is the leader. If that house has a male, has a, a husband, okay, a husband has been appointed to be the leader of that of, of that house uh, in Islam. So this has been—I don't know how it was uh, uh, in other religions during the early time, but it looks like it is the same now. The situation is changing you see, in many parts. For example, I will say that if you look in the movies like that shows like uh, Moses, for example. Uh, you don't find any person wearing three-piece suit uh, at the time. They are wearing a robe, just like they do in Arab countries uh, uh, right now. See, so what has changed now? Uh, uh, societies are changing to what they feel now that is much better. If you look in the movies, American movies that were like 50s or 40s, you don't wa find women wearing jeans. So they are wearing dresses and, and things like that. Now it has changed. Everybody is going on jeans. So we are like evolution is right now in terms of culture. Uh, but at the beginning, there was not this evolution. I think everybody was like on the same page. And I, I, I look on these movies uh, uh, every, everywhere. You look in the movies of Jesus, for example. We, did, we didn't see him, but this is an imitation. You don't find people wearing pants. You, you find people wearing robes. You see, you find women wearing headscarves during that time. See, for Islam, it hasn't changed much. For other religions, it is changing the way everybody wants now. It's, everybody's free. So that's, that's how I feel. Okay. All right, we have a few more minutes. Did John have a question? Yeah. The time has passed. The time has passed. Are you sure? <laughs> I, uh, we always want to hear from you. By the way, I just want to make a comment on this just briefly. Uh, Lawrence Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, when he lived there, he ditched the British clothing, not because, just because he was trying to fit in, but he found the robes, the way that the Arabs lived in the yeah. desert, to be much more acceptable, clean, healthy, mm -hmm. than to strap up all of these clothes. So that's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Wherever you live, the culture is going to 
have a big uh, impact on the kind of clothing you wear yes. and the traditions that get started. So you mentioned earlier that Jesus didn't advocate for any kind of violence, correct? That's my understanding, yes. There is a difference between religion commanding violence and common sense where it's necessary. Defensive warfare, or like you said, when someone is oppressing you, it makes sense that you have to fight. You don't let someone rule over you. You don't let someone attack you. God says, take care of yourself. So it makes sense that you would. Well, that's the core of all just war theories in any faith that you look at. And it's not just these three. I mean, just the, the idea of self-defense, the legitimacy of self-defense, and therefore writ large nationally, is pretty much a bedrock of human existence. No one really challenges that. But when somebody says that Jesus didn't advocate that, that Christianity isn't about that, it just sounds very Christianity privileged in a way that we are the only religion that doesn't advocate violence, that the Islam does, or Judaism I don't think that's handled. Jim's point per se. I think he's trying to get it. You know, in, in, it, uh, in the time that we have left, we're not going to solve this, but one thing I noticed that um, it's because right now a lot of violence gets put on the media associated with Islam that we have this question in our mind, why are you so violent? But if, you, if, if you've spent time internationally, watch Al Jazeera overseas particularly, watch other kinds of news, you see violence being done all over the world that isn't... Uh, perpetuated by these people. And one of the things that your Quran says is, if you, we are being oppressed, well now, the definition of that <laughs> provides the, uh, uh, the original colonists felt oppressed. And Samuel Johnson, the great man of letters in, in uh, 1700 England, and John Wesley both thought that the Americans were a bunch of rascals and um, rebel rebels and criminals. Did you all know this? The leading lights of, of England thought the people that started this country were rebelling unnecessarily. They, they, and of course, the American point of view was what? You're oppressing us. We, we, we deserve to fight. From the English point of view, you guys are like a bunch of rebels. You should be happy with what you have. We're protecting you. What are you going to fight for? So the, the notion of who's oppressing who always gets. And a lot of people don't understand that there's a lot of people that follow Islam around the world that view the West and its policies as being what? Oppressive. So then they say, we have to fight because you're oppressing us. I'm not justifying anything. I just want you to understand the mindsets. Go ahead. Well, and that's where I was, that's where I was headed. With not wanting to play the devil's advocate um, and certainly not attempting to, to justify the methodologies of, of ISIS, the reality is for us to say that, that Islam has no grievance against Christianity or the East has no grievance against the West is part of the blind sinfulness that, that I was speaking of earlier. We, don't, we aren't very good at seeing how we oppress others. We're very egocentric crit critters. Um, and it, it's very difficult for us uh, in, in any of the faiths to see beyond our own ego centrality. 
the idea that Islam may actually have a, a grievance against the West rarely crosses our mind. It's a good, very good point. Yes. One of the ironies of the current argument, I think, is that there are a group of Christians who in their dismay at what they see as the jihadism in Islam are arguing for a jihadism against Islam. They're interesting to, to go to war against this because of this. There's some real irony in that. Go, and then Okay. Um, yeah, there is some irony in that, and uh, one of the ironies that we find is that whenever there is a conflict between religious groups, you find especially the most extreme elements are often perfect mirror images of each other. So I think if you were, for example, right now in the Middle East, to take the rhetoric and the statements of the settler movement in Israel and put them side to side with the statements of Hamas, you would probably be able to, if you eliminated all proper names, realize that they are fundamentally saying the same things. When I was in seminary, I was um, sitting, I ate in the dining hall, you know, which was for the undergraduate students, primarily of uh, University of the South. We had, uh, in the undergraduate school, there was one poor token Arab, uh, Saleh, who was from Morocco. And I was sitting, the table immediately behind me there were some younger undergraduate students arguing about the Middle East, particularly from a kind of a Christian Zionist perspective. And I was trying to tell myself, don't get involved, don't get involved, don't get involved. And then I finally said it, I turned around and I said, listen, I've been listening to you guys. I'm sorry, you don't know what in the world you're talking about. And I said, what you have in the Middle East is two nationalisms making sacred claims to the same real estate, neither of which is willing to recognize the legitimacy of the other. And I turned to Saleh and I said, do I have it right? He said, exactly. <laughs> so here were I, you know, the former Jew and the Arab, seeing eye to eye on what the conflict is about because essentially this is exactly what happens when you get religion involved in political conflicts, what you find is the arguments on each side are perfect mirror images of each other. And that should give you pause to say, maybe this is saying nothing about the religious traditions of the two sides, what it's saying everything about is the capacity of people to misuse those traditions. All right, we have time for one more quick question. And uh, You just said what I was thinking. It's almost like if you took religion away from the situation of ISIS and Christianity and everything and judge what people are doing as good people or what's fair or right, that would be more accurate. But as a woman, um, and I did try to read the Bible many times in my life, and I did see a lot of the violence and all the multiple um, wives and everything, and I just was repelled in a sense until eventually I got that, um, the essence of what the Bible was saying through other things. But I've always thought that 
the word of God and Christ's energy should be used as a tool and not as a weapon. But once you open that door to my way um, of thinking or your particular way, then the ego and all this other force of nature comes through and we become even more aggressive instead of just trying to make a point. It's like a power kind of, so. And thank you very much for being here and for allowing me to be here. <laughs> I have, the, um, I have the privilege of organizing this class and I, I can't tell you what a joy it's been for the last few weeks to have all of you here to be involved in this type of dialogue and in, in, in particular today for our panel. Uh, keep in mind that I do like to um, give a small token of appreciation to our teachers and for the last 10 weeks they've put in a lot of effort. So if you'd like to make a contribution, you can do it anytime to me and I promise they'll get them. Zev, help me real quick. Tevia, uh, he heard two arguments from two different opposing views. Oh, yes. And Tevia's comment was, yes. When Perchik came to town and, yeah, and Tevia was uh, giving out the groceries for Shabbat for people, and, uh, and one of the people there who was getting stuff from Tevia said, why should I bother my head over what's going on in the world? You know... I've got trouble enough. Let the world break its own head. And, er and Tevye said, you're right. And then Perchik says, nonsense. You can't turn your back on what's going on in the world. And Tevye said, he's right. <laughs> and then another person there said, wait a minute. He's right. And he's right. They can't both be right. And he yeah. says, you know, you're right too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel sometimes like Tevye had the right perspective on the world. But I also think Joshua did too. Joshua called us and asked, who will we serve? And my prayer for our dismissal today is that we will stand up like Joshua and say, in this house, we will serve the Lord. Have a good week.